0: Well, last week I began a new sermon series going through the book of Acts, and I've called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. You know, the book is actually called Acts of the Apostles, but it's all about the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit did through the early church and the apostles. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, looking at what's known as the day of Pentecost. Acts 1, which we looked at last week, Jesus had risen from the dead, spent some time over 40 days with his disciples, and then he ascended to heaven. And we looked at the significance of the ascension, something that's often overlooked. Uh, But there's three main things that were important about the ascension, I said. First of all, uh, it shows us divine authority, that Jesus reigns over all. We know that he reigns, that he is always working all things together for good. There's divine advocacy, that he is at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us like our heavenly lawyer, right? That no matter what condemnation, no matter what accusations come against us, that he stands saying that, no, they are not guilty. They belong to you, Father. And then thirdly, divine intimacy. Not only does he go on up there to prepare a place for us, but he sent his Holy Spirit, which we will look at today, to be God with us, right? Because if Jesus was still on earth, risen but still on earth, we'd have to, like, get a flight over to Israel to go have an audience with him or wait till he goes on tour. But because he's gone up to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit, God is within each of us. As it says in John 14, 16 to 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Amen? That's the Holy Spirit. So let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Acts 1 ended with the disciples together in Jerusalem praying, locked in a room, waiting for God to send his Holy Spirit. And here we go. When the day of Pentecost came... when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it <coughs> that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this means. Help us not only to understand it in in its words, but also by your Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to us. Do what we cannot do in our own flesh and blood, but do what you can only do by your spirit this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a pretty pivotal moment in world history, Acts chapter 2. I mean, the birth of Jesus we celebrate on Christmas, that's big. Jesus' death and resurrection we celebrate at Easter, that's pretty big as well, but this is right up there. This is Jesus giving his Holy Spirit to be God within each of us. And I want to just ask along with the crowd when they say, what does this mean? Let's ask that this morning. What does Pentecost mean? And first of all, you can't understand what happens here without understanding Pentecost, because Pentecost didn't begin that day. Pentecost was a Jewish feast that they had gathered for, okay? And God likes to do this, doesn't he? Just like Passover was when Jesus was crucified, because it gave a lot of symbolism to what Jesus was doing, just as Passover was about how the lamb was slain, the blood was put on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over the the houses where the Israelites were to spare them so that they could then go free. And Jesus, you know, they chose that day, Passover, the feast of Passover to be the day when Jesus would be crucified, because that Passover long ago pointed to this greater Passover, where Jesus would be the lamb who was slain, and by his blood, the angel of death would pass over us, and we would also go free and be saved, Right? And so here, they choose the Feast of Pentecost for the giving of the Spirit. And there's a reason for that. If you're not familiar with Pentecost, it was also called the Feast of Weeks. Read in Exodus 34:22, Celebrate the Feast of Weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. It was an agricultural festival. Farmers would bring the first sheaf of their wheat from the crop and offer it to God as a sign of gratitude and as a prayer that the rest of the crop would come in, right? It's a, it's a first fruits, the celebration of the first fruits of the harvest. Not the whole harvest, but the first fruits of the harvest. Leviticus 23 says it this way. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord from wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Okay? So that's the first thing. It's a celebration of the first fruits of the harvest. And it was also a reminder of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That happened 50 days after Passover. They escaped from Egypt. They went out. And 50 days after that, they were at Mount Sinai. And God gave the law, the Ten Commandments and the rest, saying, this is what it means to be my people. This is what it means that I'm your God. And so, Pentecost was a celebration where people would gather in Jerusalem, they'd bring their sheaves of wheat, you know, they'd celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, and they would remember the giving of God's law at Mount Sinai. So, this is the occasion that God chooses for the giving of his spirit. And again, we have in verses 2 through 4 of Acts 2, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. That separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So the Spirit comes in the sound of a violent wind and tongues of fire. And everyone who is gathered hears the gospel declared in their own language miraculously. So, why did God choose Pentecost? What do you think the symbolism is here of giving the Holy Spirit on Pentecost? Well, first I would say this, the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the harvest, not the grain and wheat harvest, but the great harvest of people who is to come, who will be with God forever. Romans eight twenty-two to 23, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, and not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." Paul here is saying, oh, we long for that day when evil and sin and death will be no more and we will be with God forever. He says right now we, we groan for that day, we long for that day, but we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And again, it's the first fruits, it's not the whole harvest, right? I mean, if your experience of God, if you think that is like, that's the best it's gonna be, no, it's just the first fruits. If you're like, this is it, you know, knowing God that this is all there's to it. It's the first fruits. As great as it is to know God, to walk with him, to have his Holy Spirit, it's only the first sheaf of wheat, wheat, right? It's only the beginning. The whole harvest is still to come when you are with him forever. Amen? I mean, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what it's going to be like on that day. Right now we've just got that first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And secondly then, the meaning of Pentecost, why he chose that day, the Holy Spirit writes God's laws on our heart. At Mount Sinai, Moses went up the mountain and came down with God's laws. And here at Pentecost, Jesus has gone up to heaven and sends down his Holy Spirit, not with a law on stone, tablets of stone, but to write God's law on our hearts. Listen to the couple of prophecies about this day. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. The time is coming, declares the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. See that? It's not going to be like it was where they came out of Egypt and I gave them tablets of stone and they had to follow those laws. No, I'm going to put my law in their hearts. They're going to know what it means to know me in their hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Again, so why did God choose Pentecost? Pentecost was a festival where they all gathered together to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest and to remember God giving the law at Mount Sinai. And He chooses that because of the symbolism here that He's going to give His Holy Spirit as the first fruits of that great harvest that one day will be with Him forever. And secondly, instead of tablets of stone, He's going to write His law in our hearts. And we're going to know intimately who God is and what it means to know Him. We're not going to have to look outward, we're going to know. By his Holy Spirit in us. That's Pentecost. But there's one other thing that happens here as well that I want to highlight. Remember that people from all nations gathered together, and there's this awkward list of nations that I had to read, right? There's this why is there this list of nations here that happens at Pentecost? And they say, how come we can hear the gospel, the words of God declared in our own tongue, in our own language? The last time in the Bible there was a list of nations like this. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 10. And in Genesis 10, there's a list of nations. And then after that comes Genesis 11. And what happens in Genesis 11 is they try to build this tower called the Tower of Babel. You know, we're going to make a name for ourselves and make our way up to God. And God destroys that and confuses their speech. And they're scattered all over the world. And there's this disunity that happens as a result. So what's happening here at Pentecost I think the third thing that's happening here is it's hearkening back to that. To show how the Holy Spirit unites people across all barriers into the family of God. Back in Genesis, people were scattered. There was disunity. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is uniting people from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues into one people of God. Amen? That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. It's a... Again, first fruits of the final harvest in Revelation 7 that we're going to see. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Pentecost is just the first fruits of this great harvest, reversing the curse of Babel. Instead of that disunity, now he's gathering together people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. I mean, just in case you're not aware, Christianity is not a European religion. It's not an American religion. It's not a white man's religion. One of the most amazing things about Christianity is that it began as a Middle Eastern religion, and then it migrated to Europe and migrated to America, and now it's predominantly in the South, right, in not the American South, but in South America and Africa. That's where you're going to find most Christians these days. And now China and Korea and places like that are growing, and there's going to be more Chinese Christians probably in 20 years than there is anywhere else. It's just incredible to see what God is doing around the world. And for those who think that Christianity is somehow a Western religion, it's not. Far from it. It's Obviously, it's, you've probably seen it's kind of declining more in the West But in Africa, in South America, in Asia, it's growing. This is what God is doing by the power of his Holy Spirit, uniting people across all barriers into one people of God. So why does it matter that the Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the harvest. It's just the beginning. Your relationship with God, your experience of God, is just like the first sheaf of wheat. Don't worry, there's so much more to come. The Holy Spirit was given to write God's law on our hearts so that we could know him intimately, not have to look outwardly to some tablets of stone. And the Holy Spirit is reversing the curse of Babel. It's uniting people across all barriers. Now, as important as as that is, there's a whole other level to Pentecost, right? Beyond this. I mean, this is fascinating and interesting, I'm sure. But if you look at the imagery in Pentecost, it's also violent wind and tongues of fire speaking in other languages. The Spirit is the sound of a violent wind, and that violent wind symbolizes the empowering work of God. And the Spirit is like tongues of fire, symbolizing the purifying work of God, the wind, the fire, that the Holy Spirit empowers and it purifies. And I want to highlight those two things that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit empowers, the Holy Spirit purifies. Because, you know, this happens all the time when I get up here, but certainly today... There's a limit to what I can do, right? I mean, I can, I can go through it. I can teach you these things, but I can't teach you about Pentecost. I can teach you about the Holy Spirit, but I can't teach you about the Holy Spirit, if you know what I mean, right? Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So, Lord, please open our hearts to understand, to know the Holy Spirit, the empowering, the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers Remember again, Acts 1.8, this is what Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's something about the Holy Spirit's ministry that empowers us, he says. Makes us into something that we weren't in our own natural state, in our own flesh. I mean, think about it. What if the disciples had heard this and been like, we're so excited Jesus rose from the dead, we want to go out and tell everybody. But they didn't wait for the Holy Spirit. Nothing would have happened. Nothing of any significance would have happened without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, without there being some sort of spiritual power behind their ministry and their message. And it's not any different today. Today when we move ahead and try to do things in our own strength without the power of the holy spirit i'm sure satan laughs and nothing of any spiritual importance happens that's what the enemy wants just you don't need god just go out and get busy do work you know work for god without being empowered by his holy spirit listen to how paul put it in 1st corinthians 2 when i came to you brothers i did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as i proclaimed to you the testimony about god I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. It's a convicting passage for someone like me who gets up here, and I'm trying to give you some wise and persuasive words. But if I'm giving wise and persuasive words without the power of the Holy Spirit, then it's a clanging gong, right? It's nothing. It's meaningless. It's not going to change or make a difference without the power of the Holy Spirit. I've mentioned before, one of the books that I had read a lot this past year uh, was I, as I prepared for prayer and revival it was Leonard Ravenhill's book, Why Revival Tarries. And there's this great quote that really changed me this past year where he says, the preacher should spend one day preparing to preach the sermon, you know, preparing the sermon, and then he says he also spent one day preparing the preacher to preach the sermon, and again, he says one day preparing to preach the sermon, and one day preparing the preacher to preach the sermon, I was, oh, (laughs) realizing that if I have an extra hour, you know, on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night, I'm gonna look over my sermon, make sure it makes sense, make sure it flows logically, And I started to say, maybe I need to do less of that and more of just spending time with God in prayer, letting him prepare me to preach the sermon. Again, because it's fine to have wise and persuasive words, but if it's not with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, it's nothing. And look at Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. I mean, that last passage and this one are just encouraging for those of us who may feel like we are unschooled ordinary men and women, those who feel like we come in weakness and in trembling, that we're not kind of these mighty men and mighty women of God. He says it's not about that. It's about coming in the power of the Holy Spirit, empowered by him. Part of how God empowers us, how the Holy Spirit empowers us, is that he empowers us with spiritual gifts, with gifts and abilities that come from him that can be used in ways that really do minister and transform others in a way that we couldn't on our own. Think of 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 and verse 11. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them and all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines Spiritual gifts are not about you becoming some sort of superhero, right? It's about God putting his Holy Spirit and giving you unique gifts that are to be used to build up others, to minister and serve others in a way that transforms their lives, in a way that you couldn't on your own. There's some who have the spiritual gift of leadership and can lead in a way that just leads people to God or evangelism, that their words and their, their preaching, their sharing of the gospel is just empowered in a way that, Brings people to faith. Some people have the gift of administration or of service, and what they do just builds up God's church and builds up others. There's so many other gifts, but that's part of how the Spirit encourages giving people supernatural power that is beyond what they can do on their own. One of my favorite examples is from D.L. Moody. In the summer of 1871, two women of Dwight L. Moody's congregation felt an unusual burden to pray for Moody, that the Lord would give him the baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire. Moody would see them praying in the front row of his church, and he was irritated. But soon he gave in, and in September began to pray with them every Friday afternoon. He felt like his ministry was becoming a sounding brass with little power. On November 24th, 1871, Moody's church building was destroyed in the Great Chicago Fire. He went to New York to seek financial help. Day and night, he would walk the streets desperate for the touch of God's power in his life. And then suddenly, and this part is from his diary, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be small dust in the balance. What do you learn from that? It's just, it, it, he's like, it wasn't me. You know, I mean... A lot of people know the name D.L. Moody. But here he is saying, it's not about me. I was preaching the same sermons before and after. But through the faithful prayer of these women and whatever God did in response to that, all of a sudden my preaching was infused with a power, a spiritual power that it had not had beforehand. That's the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Taking what we do in our own flesh, empowering with something of spiritual value. So the Spirit empowers, and we need to pray for God to empower us by his Holy Spirit to do what we can't do on our own. But the Spirit also purifies. It doesn't just empower. It also purifies like fire burning away the dross, leaving pure gold. The Spirit convicts of sin, lifts up Jesus so that you'll desire him more, become more like him. Remember what Jesus said about the importance of purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those who desire one thing, those whose hearts are set on God, says they will see God. The pure in heart bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians five twenty two to 25. It's not just about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's ministry empowers us to do things that we could not do on our own, to have an impact, an eternal impact in the way we serve and the way we live. And it also, he also purifies us. The Holy Spirit purifies us to make us into people who are people of love and joy and peace regardless of the circumstances, and patience, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, kindness, all of that. People who just, that flows out of us, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how other people treat us. This is what flows from us because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and he is purifying us. Do you want to be someone like this? What a difference you would make in the lives of those around you if this is who you were. If this is what flowed out of you naturally by his Holy Spirit. Just love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what someone filled with the Spirit looks like. 2 Timothy 2.20-21. Paul writes, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Some people, as the Holy Spirit purifies you, you become like an instrument, a vessel that God can then use. As opposed to those who are not concerned about the purifying work of the Holy Spirit, not pure at all. The Holy God looks at them and says, "What can I do with this?" You know, but those who become pure, purified, says, are used an instrument for God's purpose. It's important to hold both of those. The Holy Spirit empowers and purifies. When I look out at the church—not just our church, but the church in general and Christians in general—often they kind of fall to one extreme or the other. Some churches emphasize the power, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And they sing songs and and do, they want to kind of become these powerful Christians, right, who see God do incredible, miraculous things, and that's their focus. And we want in our worship to be something where we're stirred up to just kind of this enthusiasm and we feel this, like, power within us. But maybe the purity part is kind of not so important, and we, we're we not so concerned about whether the songs we're singing are actually Doctrinally pure or sound or not, the things that we believe, you know, we're just kind of open to anything spiritual, thinking that it's from God if it's, you know, fancy and miraculous instead of testing everything. And some churches and some Christians fall far more on the purity side and they're afraid of anything that kind of looks charismatic or anything that looks, you know, like it's miraculous. But their concern is more about we need to be doctrinally sound and pure. We need to be theologically right, and we need to be walking right with God. I don't want us to be out of balance, right? We, we don't want to fall too much. I'd say if we were one or the other, we'd probably fall more on this end, the purity, than the, the power side. But we want to be Christians in a church that is open to the surprising work of God, right? We want to be open to the Holy Spirit, to the empowering work of the Holy Spirit and asking and praying and seeking him to do things that only he could do while also being pure in heart and seeking the purity of the Holy Spirit. Making sure that the things we believe, the things that we see are in line with God. Think of the example of speaking in tongues that happens here in Acts chapter 2. It's a great example of, The extremes, right? Some of you maybe have been in churches where we just want everyone to speak in tongues. We don't believe you're a Christian unless you speak in tongues. And we want everyone in the whole service speaking in tongues. And that's it. As long as there's kind of a lot of people speaking in tongues, we feel like we're more spiritual and filled with the Spirit. And then there's others who would be on this extreme saying, no. Like anything that is is speaking in tongues or anything like that, we don't believe is of God at all. As I read this, and I could be wrong, but as I read the New Testament, it seems like there's something in the middle there. There's a middle ground there. Think of how Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 says, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's a man who's balancing power and purity, that that we don't want to forbid what God might do by his Holy Spirit, but we also want to do everything in an orderly way. And so as he puts it, He says, you know, in 1 Corinthians 14, there's a place for people speaking in tongues, but there must be an interpretation. It's not just people babbling and no one understanding what it means, but there must be an interpretation if it's done in public in a service, that there's a private prayer language that people have between them and God, but if it's done in public, there must be an interpretation. That's being open to the surprising work of the Holy Spirit and also doing it in a way that preserves the order Or, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Again, look at how he balances both, right? We don't want to be so afraid of anything that we put out the Spirit's fire, that the Holy Spirit wants to do empowering works in our midst, and we say, no, we're afraid of that. We don't want that. We're not open to that. But in the same respect, he says, test everything. Just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it's of God. Just because something seems miraculous doesn't mean it's from the Spirit. There are other spirits out there, and not all of them are of the Holy Spirit. So again, as Paul says in Romans 12, through 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Open yourself up this morning to his Holy Spirit. Ask him to fill you afresh, to empower you for service, to purify your heart, that you might be a person filled with the fruit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's not be a church that falls too much on either extreme, but one that experiences the empowering work of the Holy Spirit and the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to respond in worship. And as we respond in worship, I want to lead you kind of, and us as a church into both realms of the Holy Spirit, into the purifying work of the Holy Spirit and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. So at this time, if I could have those who are going to be serving communion come forward, we're going to come to the Lord's table and we're going to come and respond and worship as well.